Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi, I'm Anoush. I'm Alva. And I'm Stephen. And on today's New Statesman podcast, we discuss universal credit. And you ask us, is the leadership learning enough from the lessons of Ed Miliband's reign? So the row about whether or not the £20 a week uplift to universal credit that was introduced at the beginning of the pandemic is going to be extended is sort of reaching its boiling point. So we're recording on a day when this afternoon there's going to be an opposition day debate on whether or not it should be made permanent. And that's kind of Labour bringing that vote to try and smoke out Tory MPs who don't think it's a good idea to scrap the extra payment. But this is this goes beyond beyond the vote, whatever the outcome of it is. It's only a symbolic vote and Tory MPs are most likely to abstain, as they've been told to do by Boris Johnson. But behind the scenes, this is a big divider in the party, isn't it, Stephen? Yeah, I, I think it's one of those things where I think it's really worth pausing to like think back and imagine, right, it's 2014 and you're talking to someone fairly senior in both parties, obviously probably not together, but you know, you're talking to, imagine you're doing a weird simulcast where they, you can see both of them, but they can't see each other. And you went, the Labour Party has decided to use its opposition debate to call for a 20 quid increase in universal credit. I mean, only the fact, well, I guess the, the Conservative reaction would be twofold. If they were from the Treasury, they'd be like, what, is this happening in 2050 when this benefit's finally been rolled out, lol? But, <laughs> but the other thing they would do is they would immediately, well, I would say they get out of the champagne. Obviously, champagne was, was banned by the Tory party then because of Cameron's anxiety and he'd be seen as incredibly posh. But, you know, they'd, they'd get, I don't know, the, the Prosecco out and they'd go, wow, this is amazing. All of our Christmases has come at once. And the Labour person would probably go, wow, is that a good idea? Mm-hmm. Now, I think there are a variety of reasons for that. I think I think basically growing opposition to welfare cuts is, is kind of inextricably, you can't really draw out the policy reality of them happening from the election of Jeremy Corbyn as kind of cause or effect. Corbyn was the kind of superstructure, if you will, but the kind of overarching change is about uh, opposition to policy. And even though, of course, actually, yes, in terms of what was written in the 2017 manifesto, he ran on a platform of, of keeping those cuts, his general kind of vibe of I'm against all that, I think, did mean people I just think the average person did believe that Labour was going to going to, um, to to do something about, about those cuts in, in 2017. And I just think it's fascinating because 
so there are some people who basically will say we should be making an argument for this yada 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 we need to go back to doing what we did under david cameron but the thing that's noticeable about those people is they all say it privately like none of them have got like the, the brass nerve to actually do it they complain that the prime minister doesn't do it but it's i think it's quite significant that they don't they're not living their values then you have like the other half which is broadly like oh, just concede on it or and there are a variety of some because they genuinely believe it, some because they're beyond the economic question has changed, some because of the kind of pure electoral calculation. But I do really think that one of the really interesting political changes is that welfare has become, for the Conservatives in 2020, sort of like the policy equivalent of probably immigration, maybe 2002. Now, of course, obviously, like the Labour Party uh, did still, you know, win another election after that. And if they hadn't gone into into Iraq, would, would probably have won it in a third successive landslide. But it had started to become this kind of issue that they, they couldn't dismiss, they couldn't really tackle. Lots of people would privately, you know, if you like read the news from back then, or you know, read, would, would privately, you know, why aren't we making the argument for this publicly? But they themselves weren't doing it. And I think that to me is like both what the split is, but also what is interesting about the kind of two conservative arguments about how they should be responding. Mm, definitely, yeah. I mean, something that really caught my eye was a tweet from the official Conservative Party Twitter account, which was sort of making hay out of Keir Starmer's sort of plan to scrap universal credit. Now, of course, Labour have said that they want to get rid of the system for a while, but they've never really said what they want to replace it with. But of course, when they call for it to be scrapped, they do say we want to replace it with a fairer system. And there's lots of people in the sort of policy welfare world who, who don't think that would be a particularly helpful path. But it's interesting to see that the Conservative Party are using those statements quite disingenuously to suggest that the Labour Party want to pull the rug out from underneath people and they've called it vital support for millions of people and I just find it so interesting because I agree with you I can't imagine the Tory party seeing that as a particularly helpful attack line even a few years ago and it shows probably how public sentiment towards social security has changed in that time and the Conservative Party want to be seen as the party who are the architects of of this system that they say is vital, rather than a system, as we know, in reality, is less generous and is sort of a bit of a misery to live on for a lot of people. But rather than playing up that aspect of it, which once, you know, would have been seen as probably quite appealing to, to their voter base, they are changing the way that they talk about it. And that's part of the turmoil behind the vote today on the Tory side and also behind the whole debate around whether or not to make this uplift per- permanent. And another important part of this, I think, and probably probably does feed into that change in public sentiment, is that so many people, sort of millions of people, are just encountering the system for the first time because of the pandemic. And we did a piece about this a while back on how different this demographic of, of new claimants or a lot of the new claimants are from the existing claimant base. So they're more likely to have had higher incomes, they're more likely to have owned their own homes, they're more likely to have had professional jobs. And so they're the people who are perhaps more politically influential among Conservative MPs. And you can hear it in the things that, that Tory MPs say and, and, the, and the stances that they take. So remember when a lot of them rebelled against the tier system last year, one of the MPs, the MP for South Dorset, Richard Drax, said he cannot vote to see more of my hard-pressed constituents moved on to universal credit. So clearly, you know, this is coming up in their mailbags. This is coming up in their constituency offices like never before. And I think that could probably put enough pressure on the government to actually U-turn on this issue by the next budget when the sort of cut to support is 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 due to take place. And also sort of just... <laughs> 
just morally, like if you look at the figures, that's I think it's something like six million families who will see an overnight loss of one thousand and forty pounds if that uplift is pulled. And I, I don't know if it's politically viable as well as sort of morally defensible for the government to do that at this time. The thing I'm quite interested in, which you which you just touched on, Anush, is whether this attitude will be permanent because Stephen you were sort of saying that there is a growing opposition to welfare cuts in politics and we were seeing that before the pandemic then Anush as you were just outlining we're seeing more and more people accessing universal credit for the first time which I think means implicitly even though no one would no one has said this explicitly but I think it underpins the whole debate around it there's this idea that the people accessing universal credit at the moment are more deserving or potentially sort of less to blame for the situation that they find themselves in at the moment because large parts of the economy have shut down completely. I'm just wondering if we think that that is a condition or a state of the debate that will be permanent or if this is a particularly tricky point for the Conservatives because they feel like these are exceptional circumstances. I think the thing is, is that, and I, you know, I have to hold my hand up for something. This is something I completely got wrong, which is at the start of this pandemic, I really did not think universal credit would be able to cope with the scale of the demand. Now, there are lots of things about how universal credit is implemented that I don't like, but the actual infrastructure has held up a lot better than I necessarily thought it would. Mm. But but the, the reason why that's quite important is that for a long time, and basically throughout the kind of 2015 to 16 period, uh, including with um, the tax credit cuts, which were kind of the first set of welfare cuts that kind of they just couldn't actually do. The way the Treasury would retreat on welfare cuts and also the way they would when they had like a spending priority than they had to do for whatever reason, the way they would invent money is by going, this cut will be grandfathered in when universal credit comes in. As I kind of alluded to earlier, the level of sincerity that people in the Treasury would apply to when universal credit comes in I mean, you know, someone in the Treasury at the time once said to me, they said, oh, yeah, we're throwing the welfare cuts, the tax credit cuts going through. I was just like, you know, aren't you going to have to have this painful fight when you've shown you can't win again when universal credit comes in? And they were just like, look, mate, we will all be dead in the grave by the time the IDS stupid system has come in. Now, obviously, that turned out not to be the case. But I, I do think that there is a, a, a real element here that, one of the reasons why the politics of it worked for, you know, a comparatively long amount of time, and the reason why we were quite dubious that that could, you know, that that could sustain after the 2015, was that for a long time, these cuts were just theoretical for like most people, including most people in the benefit system. I think that is a more permanent change. The arc of kind of like opposition slash support for welfare does does basically broadly track how long the parties have been in power and essentially at what point the kind of like, oh, these scroungers, something for nothing narrative like becomes powerful again. And I kind of think that the main effect of the last few years has been for a variety of reasons to like slightly speed up the point where you get to the point where this stuff isn't politically sustainable. But with the kind of added weirdness this time, it's, it's become subsumed into the conservative psychodrama about what type of party they are these days yeah I think it's a really interesting and important question about whether or not this sort of change in sentiment will be permanent or whether people will think this year or this this 
period of crisis is a one-off and then they'll go back to sort of generally believing that people get something for nothing and that those who pay in having their money used by people who aren't trying or aren't working and I, I I don't know what will happen, but I think that Stephen's right. I do think that there is a shift happening because of those people who are accessing the system now who weren't before, but also because of the nature of work, you know, which has sort of been exposed and, and, and the problems in it within it have been exacerbated by the pandemic, which is that it often doesn't pay to work. A lot of people, I think over a third of people on universal credit are working it's just that they're not earning enough money to live and that's a problem with the modern economy and and our labor laws to an extent and just the way that sort of the gig economy works and and the way that self-employed people have been treated as well and the more that that's sort of a reality the less that that conservative argument that they used to love to make and and you still hear it which is you know the best route out of poverty is work that that argument doesn't work so it sounds good you know it's it sounds catchy and and it sounds like it makes sense if you don't think about it for very long but it doesn't really work when a lot of people who are accessing this system are actually working and because of the way that people work in this flexible way now or try and make as much money as they can from their businesses that they run or from bogus self-employment contracts that they may have with with certain apps and courier companies, then they know that. And the more people who know that, the less that kind of line of argument works. So I wouldn't be surprised if there is a sort of new era in terms of the public view of, of benefits is, is actually setting in and that this period has hastened that. But how the Conservatives respond to that will be really interesting because I don't think that the Labour Party has been particularly successful on the welfare sort of comms front in recent years. I get what they're doing with the £20 uplift and I think that's a really good issue to campaign on and is very important for a lot of people across the House. So I think that that's, that's a good line of attack to take. But this idea that they want to scrap universal credit and replace it with something different, I don't think that's ever sounded particularly convincing because you have to have a name for the thing you want to replace it with. You have to have, you know, something that captures people's imagination enough to think you want to do this huge bureaucratic overhaul and take away, you know, the system that I get money from, even if I don't really like that system and preferred the old one or whatever. I don't think it really works not to have sort of cooked up that policy before you start making that argument. And perhaps, you know, as lots of people in the policy world would argue, it's better to campaign for the changes to the system that you would like to see to make it fairer rather than have this line about scrapping it. I think that the position, and yeah, obviously the difficulty is, is that like, I have no idea, A, you know, what what the polling, yeah, if we had specific polling, this would show me about what people think about universal credit as a brand now mm. and indeed what they may think about it in, in five years time now early on in the rollout people on it really liked it because broadly like there are things universal credit does does very well for a variety of reasons the people who benefited from the changes to universal credit were the ones who were migrated onto it first you know not least if you're like if you're kind of if you're just dipping into unemployment briefly if you've ended your course or if you've been if for whatever reason you are having a brief experience of claiming the you know the ability to move forward various payments and a variety of things about it make it like a great benefit for that cohort now it's it's always been possible and indeed it's something i did used to think than when than when it kind of had to replace the whole legacy system it would become more unpopular i'm no longer convinced and that is actually true of universal credit as brand as opposed to universal credit as experience 
obviously your tax credit tax credit cuts are you know immiserating painful were deeply unpopular but like they they didn't affect whether or not tax credits themselves remained popular mm-hmm. and i think like the, the slight weirdness is that labor has ended up in the same position it kind of belatedly got to in 2019 when basically john mcdonald kind of went we've had what three shadow welfare secretaries they've all been rubbish We've had no welfare policy for the best part of five years. I am just going to do it myself. And they basically ended up with like a series of, I thought, very sensible fixes to universal credit and then a kind of nebulous internal yeah. coalition managing policy to like scrap it at some point when it was a bit like, but once you've made all of these changes, unless you were going to go for like, you know, unless you were going to go for a UBI and actually you could, you could have a UBI within you you wouldn't actually need to like scrap universal credit to turn it into a universal basic income if if like if that was your thing yeah i similarly don't really understand not least because i at least got why in the context of like shadow treasury and and john mcdonald in particular realizing that like the only way the welfare problem would be to fix would be for be fixed would be for them to take ownership of it i completely understood why they had a political reason that they had to have that over of course we'll scrap it at some point whereas what I think has been particularly weird is that Shadow Welfare had, and still has actually, a perfectly good set of like day one fixes. And then they've gone, oh, by the way, we would scrap it. And so, but why? I just don't believe that scrapping it as opposed to fixing it is ever going to be a better position to go into an election with because your fixes are tangible things that like someone can hold in their hand. Whereas, like, saying it's like now called state pay inky boost like you know it's just like <laughs> i just don't buy that that's then that's a thing that like matters to anyone if you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too then why not subscribe to the new statesman you can get 12 weeks for 12 pounds go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12 Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. And now it's time for a section we like to call You You Ask Us. So today's question is, the current Labour leadership team makes a lot of the lessons they've learned from Corbyn's failures, but what lessons have they learned from Ed Miliband's? Looks to me like they are stumbling into many of the same traps. So I thought that I would ask this question, not having served on the NS politics team in the Miliband era, so I thought I'd put it to our two experts. Having lived through that time many moons ago, (laughs) what do you think the potential traps from the Miliband era are that that the current Labour leadership could be falling into? Anush, should I go to you first? 
I think this is a really, really good question because lots of the emphasis of Keir Starmer's sort of leadership and his shadow cabinet as well has been about we're a new leadership and then, you know, the obvious thing is is to draw a line between him and, and Jeremy Corbyn's leadership and the mistakes that he made. But actually, if you think about it, some of the things that he's trying to move the party on from from Jeremy Corbyn's era is are things that were a sort of specific problem that Keir Starmer is looking to fix, particularly about the sort of morals and reputation of the party, the way that the party actually works. So the anti-Semitism blight is sort of part of that. And that's something that, you know, is actually an internal sort of party problem rather than a sort of sort of policy platform or, or, or a tonal thing about wh- where the party stands in terms of its sort of sort of policy platform. And actually, I think because there are those mistakes and those big problems in the Corbyn era that it's, you know, it's the, there's the onus on Keir Starmer to fix. And he's had to speak about that, you know, so often and, and make that so prominent about his leadership that he hasn't had the space and he hasn't had the focus on on the other stuff. And some of those problems in the Corbyn era were actually problems that began or were seeded in the Ed Miliband times. So a lot of the manifesto problems, I think, were actually began back under Ed Miliband's leadership. And I saw those problems happening on the doorstep, you know, when they were trying to sell their, their 2017 and 2019 manifestos. Some of those problems were the same as what they were trying to do in 2015, which was fudge the issues that they felt that they couldn't speak about. So, for example, in the Ed Miliband era, they had a really big problem with trying to sell what they were saying on immigration the sort of logical conclusion of that of that fudge that they were trying to achieve were those mugs that said controls on immigration on them and i think that that jeremy corbyn's leadership they have they had the same problem except that immigration then during those two elections that he fought were brexit you know and so they had that particularly difficult way of trying to communicate the party's policy on that and both of those issues that didn't fly well with voters and weren't convincing and didn't sound authentic were because of trying to compromise on where they felt sort of the heart of the Labour Party actually lay. So in the Ed Miliband era, you had a lot of commentary about the wine drinkers versus the beer drinkers. And you did have a lot of commentary about the sort of rugby league towns back then as well. And there was that same sort of pull at Labour's soul in two different directions during the Jeremy Corbyn years. And I don't think that the Keir Starmer leadership campaign or his current leadership now has reconciled that fundamental problem which manifests itself in these sort of compromises and trying to please two different coalitions and then you get these confused policies that don't actually tell you much about where the party stands and, you know, upset people who felt like the party sort of reflected their own principles, particularly on things like immigration and sort of issues like that, but they also don't sort of attract the voters that they think that they should be attracting by those kind of compromises. So I'd say that some of those problems have continued right through from the Miliband era to now. And I haven't seen I haven't seen any solutions for them. That said, we haven't seen Keir Starmer other than the other than the leadership election. We haven't seen him actually fight a sort of election yet. So maybe that's a little bit unfair and maybe it's a bit premature to make that criticism. But I like the question because I can see the party falling into those traps again. I think it's a really good question. I also think your answer was very interesting because because I, I actually think that in terms of the mistakes I believe this leadership is making and the mistakes I believed the Ed Miliband era uh, leadership was making, right? They actually don't have any 
direct read across, right? They're actually stylistically very, very different breeds of mistake. Because broadly, basically, there's kind of like what you might describe as the legacy problems of the Labour Party has lost four elections in a row. Mm. And the specific problems of in 2019, that the Labour Party lost an election really badly. Actually, it felt to me throughout the Corbyn era that you'd have like loads of, of people doing discourse about what was going wrong, where they would basically go, they have, we have this problem, we have this problem, we have that problem. And they would basically list the three problems that the party had acquired after 2015. And you'd just be like, um, but you do remember the 2015, okay, it was a small majority, but it wasn't close, right? It was not a close election. It was, it was an, an emphatic victory for David Cameron. And you'd, you'd kind of think, okay, but what about these, these, some would argue, larger list of, list of problems? I would say that the big kind of structural mistakes of the Ed era were, you know, trying to sort of please everyone in the Labour Party, incredibly cautious and delayed decision making. I mean, so manifested in like the tuition fee policy, right, where like they ended up with a policy to what, cut it to like 6K or something? Uh, yeah, if you wanted to devise a policy, it was like, actually like, more regressive than 9k not a good retail policy still really expensive you know just kind of utterly pointless and in sort of every way and you know when they would come up to like difficult votes and you know were you know traps and been laid for them by Cameron and Osborne there'd be kind of months of agonizing and will they won't they's and arguing about the shadow cabinet whereas to be honest if anything I think that one of the problems this time is you can see how Keir's done a really good job, both of introducing himself to the public as like, I'm cautious and I like wouldn't do anything that crazy. But also a large chunk of the Labour Party really seems to believe it, both the ones who like it and don't like it, was going, yeah, of course, we'll abstain on all of these security bills. Don't worry, we don't need to have a question about what happens if they come for the Human Rights Act. Okay, it now turns out actually then the Brexit deal probably has got him out off that particular hook. But the kind of the zero to 60 from because one of the things I would say Ed's team were very good at is they were good at that kind of stakeholder management of, okay, okay, they often would struggle to reach a decision about what they would do on these big set piece events. But they would kind of do that like, and when this happens, we're going to do X and we're thinking about Y, rather than that kind of like slightly bizarre thing with the Brexit vote, where like in December, they kind of went, hey, guess what? It turns out we might have to vote on a Brexit deal. And um, we've decided what our position on this is, but we're kind of going to roll it out in a way where it comes as a surprise to quite a lot of people. And I just think those those mistakes are so unlike the structural mistakes of, of the Ed era. Also, right, the, the reason why I don't think they are actually very easy to compare is that Ed's big issue was that he could not recruit to the core positions in a way that actually meant that he had people who he was aligned with in like the big portfolios. There was no one who could plausibly do the job of Shadow Chancellor other than Ed Balls and Yvette Cooper, both of whom were slash are to his right. There was no one he well, yeah, I mean, on home affairs, right, as, as Anusha said, right, they were just in this complete mess on like on how to deal with those questions of immigration. The difference is, is in 2017, it felt to me that what happened was there was a brief period when Diane Abbott's credibility on left liberal issues meant that the Labour Party could get away with going, free movement will end it. Mm. Prisoners will deport them from, you know, right, right from the jail cell to the airport. And they could just reassure, 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 uh, yeah, all of those voters, which we did used to talk about throughout the period too, of, you know, small ex-industrial towns where the Labour mm. Party was struggling for some time. And then for a variety of reasons in 2019, 
they were no longer able to go for a vote maximization option, which would have been a pro-Brexit position, and they had to go for a loss minimization position, which meant switching to a stop Brexit position, but one they could not, in my view, ever have won an election on. Mm-hmm. And they're basically still trying to do that, right? The strategy is you have the 2017 manifesto, you have you know basically the same, in some ways actually arguably more loose fiscal framework. You have the only policy area, to my knowledge, that that has kind of been like, you know, has someone come from the leadership on high and say to Shadow Treasury, look, you have to, you know, the money for this has to remain ring-fenced, to my knowledge, and there may be others, tuition fees. So it's broadly like the 2017 campaign, but the PM designate has a more more reassuring chin. Now... (laughs) I don't believe that strategy can work because I think part of the appeal in 2017 wasn't the leader was not reassuring. That was also why the leader didn't do as well, right? Like, I don't think it's one of the, I think it's one of those things where you can like, you can move around which voters don't like, you know, like either like, oh, he's too reassuring or oh, he's not reassuring, but you can't actually change the structural problem. So you're then just left being like, question mark, something will happen to cause the Tories to, to lose votes to someone other than us. But yeah, I think this is why I think your answer was so interesting, Anoush, because when I looked at this question, I thought, I see why you think this, but I think it's precisely wrong because their mistakes are quite different. But what unifies them is that they broadly don't really seem to have a narrative or a plan yet that we can see to tackle any of the like the problems of Ed Miliband, which is why it feels to me that if like, you know, if you ask me to guess what the election result would be, I'd be like, well, 2015, but the Tory anti-Tory vote is probably more efficiently distributed rather than what they want, which is, you know, 2017, but you also get like all of the votes of people who are like, oh, I'm not sure about the leader. Yeah. And and I do think you're right. One of the mistakes that they haven't fallen into this time round is the introduction of the leader. So I remember after the 2015 result, everyone was very wisely saying, well, voters had made their minds up about Ed Miliband, you know, the day that he became leader. And then you can't undo any of that after that. And it seems that the Labour Party has has kind of learned from that. Maybe it sort of skipped it during the, the Corbyn years, but they have kind of learned from that in that they were very, very careful about sort of honing Keir Starmer's image and making sure that, like you say, he did seem like this reassuring, I'm not going to do anything too crazy kind of presence. And they, they're still doing that. And they're really obviously trying to embed that kind of reputation in people's minds so that it's sort of like a gut feeling about him, which I think we all know that that sort of that gut feeling about Ed Miliband was a bit overplayed after the 2015 result, but it was definitely part of it that people just didn't see him as a leader and saw him as, as a bit awkward and geeky. And I think they've they've obviously remembered being stung for that last time round and they, they seem to have sort of learned that lesson, even if it looks very clunky to people who are inside politics, you do know that you have to sort of hammer home an image or a message sort of to death so that people get it. So, um, so I suppose they are doing that differently. But I do agree. I think there's that indecision that, that that has always been there. You know, Corbyn was seen as someone who was a bit more maverick and, and followed his principles, but they had the same indecision on the same fundamental problem for the Labour Party of sort of basically which voters do you think you need to win to get in government? And, and that's such a fundamental question. And I don't think that those three leaders in succession have answered it. And there's nothing that I've seen that suggests, like you say, about what the result could be next time round a bit like 2015. There's nothing to suggest to me that that won't happen yet. But then, you know, we need to give him time and we need to actually have some elections to analyse. 
which obviously has been a bit of a challenge as well. This is all Alva's fault for legitimising my desire to be like, when dinosaurs roamed the earth, connected <laughs> by the PLP. But I think like, one of the things that, that I would say Keir Starmer's team have been, I was about to say very bad at, but it, it, a bit like Downing Street before the, the changeovers, parliamentary management, it's like, are you bad at this? I mean, don't you have to like try for this to be something you're bad at? It just seems to often be something they, they haven't, haven't really understood for a lot of the time. Is that one of the things people forget about Ed is that, Unlike in, for different reasons, Corbyn or Starmer, Ed Miliband was someone who, who faced the serious, active and continual prospect that he might lose power because of relationships within the PLP. He was not the first choice of, you know, PLP. He was not the first choice of, of the membership in 2010, although, of course, uh, churn within the membership meant that than he, he would have been by, by 2015. And Although he sensibly scrapped shadow cabinet elections, a truly disastrous way of putting together a front bench, he kind of inherited like the, the sort of legacy of those elections in that there were people he couldn't easily get rid of. And there were large numbers of people in that shadow cabinet who Ed Miliband would never have been able to sack. I think it would be a mistake if, if Keir were to, to get rid of his, his shadow chancellor and his shadow foreign secretary. But, you know, he could do that. Actually, he could get rid of all of his, his, his core people. I mean, he, 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 you know, whereas Ed could never have done that. He had, you know, a health secretary he couldn't move. He had a shadow home secretary he couldn't move. He had a shadow chancellor he couldn't move. You know, and his team were a lot better at the kind of stakeholder management of, oh, so we're doing this. So we need to do a kind of, you know, a bit where we brief this, this outlet that matters in the bubble so that we get permission to, to do this. They had a less effective slow news strategy. I think one of the interesting challenges, and this again is why I just think that in terms of what they get wrong, what they get right, it's so completely different, is that Keir Starmer has a fantastic slow news strategy, right? Yeah, he did Lorraine this morning and he did it very well. He does all of that kind of like, you know, the five minutes on news radio, the kind of stuff that we all rightly look at and go, wow, opportunistic much? He manages to consistently be ahead in the battle of like the push notifications and the, the four minute news, right? The problem is, is that is accompanied by um, just a complete absence of a fast news strategy. Now, obviously, the fast news stuff doesn't matter at all in terms of the election, but it does matter indirectly for two reasons. One, because like, because if basically your your political analysis, as it was for the Vote Leave people, is there is only one political editor who matters in the British media because of how it's structured and it's Laura Kay, and everyone else is like essentially irrelevant. Well, the problem is, is that Laura Kay and indeed whoever the BBC political editor is, exists in the same universe as a bunch of other people who you've kind of decided don't matter. And what they write is also shaped by a bunch of other people. But also, and this is sort of equally important, and we saw this with with the Vote Leave gang, right, is that having an effective strategy for the BBC did not prevent a bunch of Conservative MPs who were fast news people ultimately undermining and successfully destroying them. And although I think it's highly unlikely because of the internal culture of the Labour Party, the balance of opinion in the PLP, a variety of reasons, I think it's highly unlikely that that Keir Starmer will not lead the the Labour Party into the next election. I think that kind of stakeholder management, slow, fast news stuff, they just 
don't have a very good strategy for and they might wake up one morning just as it remains utterly bizarre that radio 3 literally had as its top news item yeah that lee kane who was leaving uh downing street right but, but that's what does bleed through right and i think that is like a really a really different failing because ed did have a fantastic strategy for that kind of like stakeholders influencers because he did he remained Labour leader for five years and it was it was not guaranteed in a way that I personally did always think it was guaranteed that Jeremy Corbyn would remain Labour leader unless in, in or until he you know, was defeated in an election or, or voluntarily stood down. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Shekelian, and my colleagues, Alva Ray and Stephen Bush. You can find me on Twitter at Anoush underscore C. You can find me on Twitter at pronounced Alva. And you can find me on Twitter as at Stephen KB. Our producer is Nick Hilton and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks so much for listening and please leave us a review and don't forget to subscribe. softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.